Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone who joined me for the Our Lady Undoer of Knots Novena. I'll continue to lift up your intentions, petitions, and thanksgivings as I pray. I think I mentioned on a previous episode, I pray every day since I started teaching in, what was that, 2004. Uh, Every day I pray for all of my students, past, present, and future, especially those struggling most today. So I will continue to lift up your intentions each day, and please lift up mine. Please pray for my family and friends and uh, all those entrusted to my intercession. If you missed the Our Lady Endure of Knots Novena and would like to pray it, uh, feel free to go over to my Instagram, and then I I posted the link to Instagram on my Facebook. So my Instagram is uh, Catholic Light Podcast, and then my Facebook is Rebecca Doherty. Um, So at any time, you could you know, visit my Instagram and just start with the first. I make a video each day where it's about two minutes uh, where I simply pray the Our Lady Endure of Knots Novena prayers. So if you want to pick up a novena, start a novena at any point and uh, quote unquote pray it with someone, um, you could do that by revisiting those those videos or visiting those videos on Instagram. I also, in the last two episodes, so this is episode 77, so episodes 75 and 76 in the show notes. I believe I put it both on the podcast app and then um, on my YouTube channel. At Towards the end of the show notes, I have the link, a link to um, an Our Lady Undoer of Knots Novena. So also feel free to visit that and uh, simply pray the prayers for nine days. All right. So thanks again. We, on last week's episode, we talked about, last week's episode was a heavy hitting episode. So it was the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And um, so we covered some big topics. And thanks to many of you who reached out to me um, via social media and email, um, you know, sharing some of your thoughts and and personal anecdotes. Um, I really appreciate the feedback and uh, know that I continue to hold you in my prayers, my thoughts and prayers, and, uh, you know, lift up lift up your intentions and situations. And and thanks again for the feedback. I always welcome the feedback. Um, Even though I think I mentioned in a a previous episode, my first two years of teaching were in Nicaragua. And I don't know if it was the culture or my particular group of students, but they were very honest with the feedback. And it was very helpful to me as a teacher. So I think it's it's always good to receive feedback. And so I welcome it for for better, for worse. And um, uh, you know, I try to incorporate that in my, my teaching moving forward. So thank you for that. So towards the end of, right at the end, I think, of last week's episode, uh, we talked about scandal, which is um, providing situations or temptations for others to sin. And and Christ says in the New Testament, you know, uh, it is, you know, sad for, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but, you know, uh, woe to those who uh, fall into sin, um, but, you know, an even greater woe to those who cause others to sin. And so the catechism spends a couple of paragraphs talking about scandal. And so um, reflecting on that, so first funny anecdote, but then I think leading to a, 
a serious point is this. Um, a couple years, I taught at three different high schools, and a couple years into teaching at one high school, I ended up moving. I, I got an apartment close to the school, and so when I would go grocery shopping or out for a run, I would often run into students or former students and their families. So one day, um, I'm, sh- I'm shopping at Giant, and I get a text from a former student who had become a friend, so she you know, I had her as a student in high school. She ended up going to college, graduating. And she actually ended up, when I went out on maternity leave uh, with Sophia, she ended up, she became a theology teacher, ended up uh, taking my classes and um, uh, te- teaching my students at her alma mater, which was cool. She's now married to a fellow graduate and expecting a baby. So God bless Megan and Dom and their little babe on the way. So anyway, I get this text from Megan um, who might have been in college at that point, and she went to Steubenville, so she's miles and miles away. I get a text from her saying, like, hey, so what you buying at Giant? And it was one of those moments where I, like, look over my shoulder. I'm like, what, are you here? Hey, what's up? She then sends me a screenshot of a current student at the high school's Snapchat of me going through the checkout line. It's like, so my first, my first instinct was horror. I'm like, this is weird. It's one thing to like put yourself on the internet, but then to have other people putting you on the internet when you're unaware. I'm like, oh, this is weird. And then um, that like horror turned to humor. I'm like, oh, this is funny because the the student had sna- had um, captioned it something like one of those People magazines, like, they're just like us, you know, like celebrities. They're just like us. They shop at the grocery store. They walk their dogs. They pick their nose, you know. <laughs> um, so the student had captioned something like that. They're, she's just like us. Theology teachers also grocery shop. Um, but then this this succession of of thoughts and emotions, like horror, humor, oh, this is actually kind of funny, and then like, huh, like kind of like a sobering moment um, where I realized or was reminded again, like, uh, I'm not just a theology teacher in the classroom, you know, during third period from 9 to 9.50, but I'm a theology teacher everywhere and always because, you know, I'll I'll run into my students uh, presently or years down the road. And um, people notice what we each say and do, and that either supports what I'm teaching in the classroom or it takes away from what I'm teaching in the classroom. And I think when it takes away, it's even more detrimental than had I never taught that student. So if I'm teaching the kids, um, my students, you know, go to Mass on Sunday, it's a mortal uh, mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday, and then I don't go myself, it's almost worse. Like it's a it's an anti-testimony where they might think like, oh, she teaches this, but then doesn't do it herself, so it must be okay. It's like I'm, I'm almost teaching them further down the wrong, in the wrong direction. And so um, while it was at first horrifying and then funny, it was ultimately a sobering moment and a good reminder that that people notice. And I see this now with my kids when they repeat back to me or say things in the exact tone in which Dan or I said something. Um, People really notice, even as adults, not just children and not just teenagers. Um, We we notice, we sense, we feel, we pick up on what others uh, do and then the tone in which they say and communicate things. And so I think it's um, it's just great to, to pause and reflect every once in a while, like what, how am I living my life and what kind of gospel is that communicating? Is that communicating a gospel of life or what's the opposite of life, but death, a gospel of death? Am I leading others to sin or to virtue? Am I leading others to Jesus or away from Jesus? And um, 
I think one of the the best ways we can continue to form and protect and guide our own actions so as to protect and guide others is through daily prayer, uh, especially in the morning, just coming before the Lord each day. Lord, here is where I am and help me with this. Show me this. Help me to know this. Uh, Give me the grace for that. And then allowing that encounter with the Lord, that daily encounter with the Lord to transform, affect, uh, guide all of our thoughts, words, and actions, which in turn guide or affect others. And uh, I say, I, I really encourage, encourage us to, to pray in the morning because um, it really sets the tone for the day. And I think, you know, while, while according to the sleep training book we use for our children, um, you know, some of us are are, we're, we're either naturally larks, we're morning people, or night owls. We're, we're naturally just uh, up at night and more comfortable and happy at night. But to pray at night, um, I think, is very different from praying in the morning. And when we pray at night, oftentimes, you know, we're, we're tired from the day. We have lots of, we're kind of carrying around things from the day. And um, I think there's a tendency, if you, if you think just practically, or maybe I'll just speak for myself. Um, practically, I'm not going to wake up at 5 a.m. and watch Netflix for two hours. But it's very easy to do that at night. You know, we put the kids to bed. Dan and I just want to relax. And uh, here we are sitting on the couch and like, wow, two episodes just went by. Um, and so it's, I think it's easier to tend towards those like tired, passive kind of things in the evening rather than to whew, sit up and pray, crack open my Bible, get out the rosary. Um, whereas in the morning, it's, I think, a little uh, intuitive, a little more natural to do that. So in the words of Jeff Cavins, if you're not a morning person, become one. <laughs> okay, Even if that's getting up 10 minutes earlier than you normally do, than we normally do. Um, let's make an effort to do that this week and give the those first moments of the day to God and allow him to to make right what's, you know, kind of like rolling around inside of us, uh, bring some order to it and as a result, order to the day. So that as we proceed throughout the day and people take Snapchats of us at Giant as we go through the uh, grocery store line, um, those, those Snapchats are, are leading towards the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> That's a stretch, I know. But come Lord Jesus, give us the grace not to provide scandal to others, um, but to draw others closer to you. Amen. All right. So on today's episode, where there's still a little bit more on the fifth commandment, on the second half of the episode, we're going to read paragraphs 2292 through 2336. We'll complete the fifth commandment and we'll just start the first few paragraphs of the sixth commandment. So article six details commandment six, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. So just a couple kind of miscellaneous things from the the fifth commandment. Paragraph 2293 talks about, well, paragraphs 2292 through 2296 talk about uh, respect for the person and scientific research. And 2293, I think, says it, says it very beautifully. Basic scientific research as well as applied research is a significant expression of man's dominion over creation. So God, as we read in the first chapter of Genesis, has given us dominion over creation, um, uh, others might say, or another way of saying that is he's given us stewardship of creation. So we're not called to dominate creation in like a, a violent, um, you know, anti-creation kind of way as though like I'm king, I'm queen, and you will do what I say. I will manipulate creation to my ends. 
Mwahaha. Um, but we are entrusted with the beauty of creation, the resources of creation, to then steward or use these things well for um, for the, the good of, of humankind and for the the glory of God in this life and the next. So dominion over creation. Science and technology are precious resources when placed at the service of man and promote his integral development for the benefit of all. By themselves, however, they cannot disclose the meaning of of existence and of human progress. Science and technology are ordered to man from whom they take their origin and development. Hence, they find in the person and in his moral values both evidence of their purpose and awareness of their limits. So this makes me think of Again, that line from the New Testament, from that great, uh, that great orator, Jesus Christ, where he says, uh, the Sabbath is made for man, man is not made for the Sabbath. In other words, um, the, the Sabbath, this day of rest, refreshment, is put at the service of man to lift us up, to draw us closer to the Creator. And uh, it's not the other way around, so we're not called to kind of legalistically follow, um, you know, don't lift a finger and make sure, like, your butt's in the pew on Sunday. Um, but this is all for, for man and woman to lift us up to God and to the nobility of our calling as, uh, as human beings. And so we could say the same about scientific research. Scientific research is so good and has benefited humanity and so many individuals, I think of my own life, um, where you know chemotherapy extended my mom's life so we could spend more time with her. Uh, Sophia got a tonsillectomy. She now sleeps you know, more deeply and as a result is more well-rested in the morning. Um, I can think of about five family members and friends who use CPAPs, which also help them sleep more, you know, profoundly and wake up more well-restedly. Unless you're Dan Doherty and your CPAP has been recalled because the uh, tubing was flaking off and causing people cancer. (laughs) Like, what the heck? (laughs) Gain some sleep but get some cancer. Lord have mercy. May it not be so. So the scientific research uh, benefits has benefited humanity is a is a great gift, a great advancement of of man and woman. Um, but it's not something that we bow down to as though it dictates how we use it and how to live our lives. It's a tool in living our lives well. And so we as man and woman um, continue to reign over uh, and steward well that scientific research and not the other way around. So some are of the mindset that as we advance, 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 we follow the lead of technology. Whatever technology and scientific research can offer us goes because like this is amazing, this is incredible, and let's just follow its lead. But no, we've seen, um, sadly, I'm thinking in the, the the cases of where you know it was found that certain Planned Parenthood facilities were were basically harvesting aborted children and then using that tissue for scientific research. Um, you know we see that when when science is is placed above man and woman, and uh, in this case the lives of the little babies, um, that that it's disordered. That um, you know something is not right. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, as Hamlet says, and needs to be rectified. Um, but um, bum bum twenty two ninety nine. So as we we make our way through this kind of like collection of of uh, miscellaneous topics, uh, paragraphs twenty two ninety nine through twenty three oh one, 
talk about respect for the dead. And I just want to hit on this one paragraph, 2301, talks about cremation. I think this is um, another one of those things, like we, we talked about last week, how it seemed there was a phase in church history where those who had committed suicide were not allowed to be buried in a, a Catholic graveyard. Um, I don't know if this was a thing at one point where the, where the church said you couldn't be cremated or there was a misunderstanding, but I think that misunderstanding continues to the present day where a number of people think that um, uh, that people cannot be cremated, according to the Catholic Church, and that is not true. Paragraph 2301 says, Autopsies can be morally permitted, permitted for legal inquests or scientific research. The free gift of organs after death is, is legitimate and can be meritorious. And then it says, The Church permits cremation, provided that it does not demonstrate a denial of faith in the resurrection of the body. So I think um, maybe where the misunderstanding enters is this. Uh, many people will have a loved one cremated and then sprinkle those ashes over a significant place from that person's life. So over like on the beach or in the ocean, on a mountaintop, et cetera, that was beloved of, of the, the person who had passed away, who has passed away. Um, and so that's where the misunderstanding, I think, has crept in. So it is it is licit, it is allowed for someone to be cremated after death. But then um, because of our belief in the resurrection of the dead, we believe that those remains, the cremated remains, should be laid to rest in a respectful way, a, a way that's respectful of the dignity of the human person. Because we believe, as we talked about in the, the first part of the catechism when we went through the creed, we believe that, um, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. So we believe at the at the second coming, at the end of time as we know it, that our bodies will be resurrected. This sounds creepy as we, we enter uh, into this Halloween season. Um, that our bodies will be resurrected and joined to our souls in heaven, God willing, or our souls in hell, God forbid. And we will then experience um, eternity, not only spiritually, but physically as well. Why? Because as human beings, we are body and spirit. We are corporeal and or bodily and spiritual. And um, t together, that's, that's, that's the human person. So we are not more spiritual than bodily. We are not more bodily than spiritual. But together, we are, we are body and spirit. And so... The, the fullness of our humanity will be resurrected and enjoy eternity, God willing in heaven, God forbid in hell, um, physically and and spiritually. And so um, the idea is that if our, our remains are, are scattered, you know, over Long Beach Island or wherever, um, that like just picture those, those remains kind of like coming together, rising up to heaven. This is a very like, um, how do you call it? kid way, <laughs> basic way um, of describing this. This is not like literally actually how it happens. But the idea is that th that that body will be resurrected. And so it should be placed somewhere respectfully, reverently, knowing that it will be resurrected and brought to the soul in heaven. And so to kind of like sprinkle remains about um, doesn't fully recognize the the beauty, the goodness, the um, maybe finality of that body that will be then united to the soul in heaven. So, um, so I think you can get uh, cremated remains buried. Um, oftentimes, they're placed in mausoleums. These are are both good and respectful ways to to lay a person's body to rest if you choose cremation, or if the person chooses cremation. Um, now that we're back to school. 
uh, my son Declan and my niece Olivia are in kindergarten together and um, in our school district kindergarten is still a half day and so they go to school in the morning they get off the bus together at my house and um, you know we have lunch and they play together in the afternoon it's it's super cute so they are like they're six years old they are like this cute little old married couple where you know I have the the windows open and I'll hear them like side by side swinging on the the playground in the backyard just kind of like chatting over the things of life and so I hear the other day well a couple weeks ago I hear Declan turn to Olivia and say um uh Livy did you know that the world's going to end but don't worry we get our bodies back at the end which first of all you know your mom's a theology teacher when at six years old this is what you're talking about without skipping a beat my niece Olivia says um you know what I I just can't wait till the end of the world and Declan says why you want the world to end she goes yeah because then we'll get grandma back you precious girl just put all the pieces together we get our bodies back at the end of the world you know grandma's body is is in the ground and uh we get grandma back when when the world ends awesome (laughs) this was i mean this my niece olivia is is full of profound ones the uh, a week ago i hear sophia sophia must be studying vincent van gogh in her art class she turns to Olivia and says, um, Livy, Vincent van Gogh is the greatest artist of all time. And without skipping a beat again, Livy goes, no, he's not. God is. <laughs> I was like, go, girl. So I text my brother-in-law's sister, Tammy, who's Livy's godmother. I say, way to go, godmama. Like, this six-year-old's theology is on point. You were doing a great job. Whatever you're praying, whatever you're sacrificing for your goddaughter is working because <laughs> she is good. So again, cremation um, is allowed by the Catholic Church as long as the remains are laid to rest respectfully because we recognize the the resurrection of the body at, at the end of time where our bodies will be joined to our souls. All right, moving along to a very different topic, paragraphs 2308 and 2309, the just war theory. We touched a little bit on this in uh, last week's episode when we talked about legitimate defense, but in paragraph... Uh, let's see, 2309, the catechism lays out what's known as the just war theory or the just war doctrine, um, the strict conditions for the legitimate defense by military force. So paragraph 2308 says, all citizens and all governments are obliged to work for the avoidance of war. So we recognize that war reaps uh, destruction, even if the aggressor is kept at bay or, um, you know, taken out of the equation, um, still lives are, are hurt, are ruined by war, and so we work to avoid war at all costs. However, the paragraph goes on to say, as long as the danger of war persists and there's no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peace efforts have failed. So it is not only permitted but good to defend oneself, one's country, those entrusted to one's authority, Um, if the following conditions are met. So at one and the same time, there are four things. At one and the same time, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. So the damage inflicted must be lasting. It's going to go on for a while. Grave, so very serious, and certain. So we're not just surmising like, you know, this country has, you know, built up its armament or has the atomic bomb and so let's go to war and take them out before they 
you know, use that on us. That's, that's not certain that that's going to happen, and so that would not be considered a just war. Second condition, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown uh, to be impractical or ineffective. So we've explored every other option, and we've determined either those, those options won't work, um, they'll be ineffective, they won't keep the, the unjust aggressor at bay. Number three, there must be serious prospects of success. So we don't go into war knowing that we're going to lose, that lives will just be destroyed, and the unjust aggressor will still win in the end and continue to wreak havoc on a country, the world, etc. And then lastly, condition number four, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs heavily in evaluating this condition. So because speaking of, of scientific research and technolo technological advances, um, the the weapons we have at our disposal um, are so advanced and so destructive that when considering going to war, um, one of the conditions that must be met for it to be considered a just war is that the the use of, of guns, bombs, et cetera, arms, um, must not wreak worse havoc than had the unjust aggressor, you know, gotten his or her way and wreaked havoc. Um, you know, by another means. And so, you know, we it's like a we can't scorch the earth mentality um, just to, you know, deal with the unjust aggressor. We can't then destroy everyone and everything else in our path. So these are the elements um, enumerated in what is called the just war doctrine. Paragraph 23.12 then further explains the church and human reason both assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflict. The mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between the warring parties. So once those, those uh, conditions have been met for a just war, that we still behave in a morally good, as morally good of a way as we can during the war. So it, it doesn't mean like all bets are off now, we just again, wreak havoc on, on the unjust aggressor and his or her nation, um, but we still act in a morally upright way, which sounds kind of weird to say during war, but you get it. All right, so that brings us to the end of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Just a quick, uh, quick take on the sixth commandment, which comes to us through Article 6, so we're in Part 3, Section 2, Article 6 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And uh, we'll, we'll just touch on a, a couple points here. And then on next week's episode, probably, yeah, next week, possibly in two weeks' episodes as well, um, just further flesh out this, this topic, which I realize is ironic. Flesh out this topic when we're talking about the Sixth Commandment. Okay, so Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We see in, uh, it begins with paragraph 2331, God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal loving communion. Creating the human race in his own image, God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation, so the calling, and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. So recall from first chapter of Genesis, um, as God is, is creating the world in these six days and then resting on the seventh, when he gets to the creation of man and woman, God says, I believe it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. So the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament does not use the word trinity. 
Um, However, this is a fundamental belief, the central mystery of our Christian Catholic faith, that God is a trinity of persons, three persons in one God. We are a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. And yet, who God is, is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving and receiving love, giving and receiving love. So that when we point to God, who God is, it's a communion, a relationship of persons. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. That alone is something we could pray about, think on, reflect on from now until eternity. And even when, God willing, we're in heaven one day, looking at the Trinity face-to-face, the beatific vision, um, we, we will still enjoy that, unpack that uh, for eternity because it's so profound. Who God is is a communion of persons, a relationship of love. God literally is love, three persons giving and receiving love. And so he makes us, let us make man in our image. So God does not say, let me make man in my image, but let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image. And so God creates us, male and female, to image who God is. So God is above and beyond gender. He is neither male nor female. And yet, maleness and femaleness come from the living God. And so as men and women with the capacity for communion, and not just in marriage, most notably in marriage and family life, um, but in any communion, friendship, relationship, a giving and receiving of love, we image the Trinity. We image who God is. We, we shed a little light. We give a little glimpse to the world of, of who God is, which is just wild, which is just awesome. And come, Lord Jesus, we've, we've gone so wrong. We have so many problems with that. Um, and so um, let's see, paragraph, yeah, Genesis 127. So paragraph 2331 goes on to say, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. 2333 says, everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity, physical moral and spiritual difference and complementarity. So men and women are different. We know this from our day to day, different and yet complementary. So we complement or uh, work together. Um, Our difference and complementarity are oriented towards the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends in part on the way in which the complement, excuse me, the complementarity needs and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. So the harmony of the couple and of society. So the world at large, uh, the harmony of the world at large depends in part on the way in which the complementarity needs and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. So we are different as men and women. We are different um, and complementary. So we each have something to bring, something to bring to the table, something to bear on uh, life, marriage and family and society at large as men and as women um, and something that the other does not have to, to give, to share. And so we, we need each other. Um, and I don't mean in like a, like a yin-yang um, looking for my soulmate, my other half kind of way, but in a, a way that's – I've probably talked about this before. I just think about um, – so I'm the oldest of four children. I think about my family of origin, and then I think of uh, my, my little family now. And – actually four kids in each family, two boys and two girls in each family. Um, Each of the children are so different. 
um, but bring just so many good things to the table and, you know, need the others to be better versions of themselves. So um, Sophia is such a good big sister to, you know, her little brothers and her little sister and her little brothers, you know, bring things to the table that Sophia doesn't have and help her be a better big sister. And it's just really cool to see like the same family. Um, I mean, they were each born into a different family because at first it was just Sophia and then Declan was born when it was just Sophia and him and then, you know, Peter and then Lucy. Lucy enters the mix with like these these three kids and it's just already like, wah, like a circus. Um, so, but same, they're, they're being raised in the same family and yet their, their little personalities are so different and um, it's, just, it's just really cool to see. So as men and women, we are different and complementary. We, we can each bring things to the table that the other can't. And um, I want to say it was Edward Suri, a theologian and, and scholar who does a lot for Ascension Press. I think my, my parish is currently doing a Bible study with him. Um, I think it was he who said or who pointed out that um, if you look at the days of creation, God makes distinctions. So he separates light and dark. Light and dark are different um, but each bring you know beautiful things to the world. Land and sea, different. He makes another distinction. They each bring beautiful things to the world, um, you know, and then goes through like different animals and plants, et cetera. And then ultimately man and woman, different. So there's a distinction. A man is not a woman. A woman is not a man. We are different and complementary. We bring different wonderful things to the world and, and show different things about God. So we can, you know, kind of quickly run through different scripture passages where God is spoken of in male terms, and um, which I think that's, that's often what we think of, um, but then also female terms. So we think of that passage where God is compared to, um, uh, to you know, a, a hen who basically like covers her little brood. Is that right? Do hens have broods? Um, and, you know, protects them under her wings. Um, this imagery of Christ on the cross and then the blood and water spilling out. The church fathers uh, compared that, compared him in that, that state of his life to like a mother nursing her children. Christ feeds us from the cross uh, with his love, his grace, his mercy, etc. And so, again, God is neither male nor female, yet maleness and femaleness come from God. And... Uh, the harmony of, of marriage and family and society depends on understanding this, this difference and this complementarity. And sadly, because of original sin, so it, I think, has always been this way, and we're continuing to, to try to combat that and invite God's grace in to overcome this, um, rather than seeing being understood as different, uh, oftentimes we try to be the same because we fear, like, we're missing out on something that the other has. So rather than celebrating difference, we we strive for sameness. So not equality, but sameness. Um, no longer recognizing that men and women are very different. And uh, far from celebrating our complementarity, we, we often pit ourselves against each other. Society pits men and women against each other. And we are both, both the worse for it. And if you've seen the recent Barbie movie, you've seen this played out in living color, sadly. Really living color. It's a very colorful movie. I had mentioned a few episodes ago that my dear friend, my best friend, Teresa, and I went to see it. Very hopeful that um, the critics were wrong and that it was good. Um, and I mentioned a few episodes ago that Teresa and I were going to do a podcast episode. We, we um, 
kind of miss that, and are going to let that go for the moment. But but hopefully, I told Teresa, I said, we'd love to see another uh, episode where we, we commentate together on something. So for now, I'm just going to say a, a few quick things on Barbie as it pertains to uh, the Sixth Commandment and here this this line about the difference and complementarity of women. So I was very hopeful for Barbie because the the writer, director, Greta Gerwig, as I mentioned before, um, has done a, a number of movies, and um, most notably for me was her rendition of, of Little Women with uh, Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan, Laura Dern, where I thought she just beautifully there, – there were so many nuances where she just beautifully highlighted the – the strengths, the weaknesses of each of the women. She highlighted, I thought, the beauty of suffering, how um, suffering well is is courageous and noble and brings fruit to uh, relationships, to family life. And um, basically, I thought I thought she she handled the movie very well. And so when all the all this negative commentary was coming out out about her Barbie movie, I thought, nah, they they've got to be getting it wrong. Like again, she's much more nuanced than. I think what it first meets the eye, um, and so let's go go check it out. So so Teresa and I went to see it, and sadly, so many of the critics were right. She got a couple things right, I think, um, uh, in that you know ultimately. So spoiler alert it's to come if you haven't seen the Barbie movie. Stop here if you're going to go see it, um, and then resume afterwards. But uh, I think she gets some things right where she said, you know, she shows that um, that Barbie ultimately leaves like the fake plastic life for a life of true relationship, depth, beauty, reality. Um, she shows um, there's this one scene where Margot Robbie is kind of witnessing the beauty of all these female relationships. So, you know, mothers and daughters, um, uh, female friendships. Uh, there's another scene where Margot Robbie's sitting on a bench next to this this older woman who's you know all wrinkled and you can tell has lived a life and and the Barbie character turns to this woman and says you are beautiful and the woman looks back at her and says I know which apparently um, you know before this went to went to the theaters uh, Greta Gerwig was advised to take out that scene. And uh, she said, if I take out that scene, I don't know what this movie is about. Basically, everything in life that gives you wrinkles, uh, those are the things that, are, that make life worth living or the, bring us to the, the beautiful moments of life. So she got a handful of things really right, I think. But then I think she really got the, the relationship between men and women wrong. Um, and ultimately, I think it was, it was very sexist towards men. It portrayed men as kind of like these dumb brutes. Um, who are thoughtless, who are just like hanging on women for the meaning of their existence, and um, were really just these these one dimensional sad characters. I mean, even the you know the Will Ferrell character, who's the head of Mattel, the there he and the other men, the board of men at Mattel, are portrayed as just like these bumbling fools, um, and as are many of the men throughout the rest of the movie. So. As Teresa and I were, were kind of chatting through, and I'm, I'm just going to give credit right now to any good thought on Barbie that comes through this podcast episode. I give full credit to Teresa Linker, my best friend. She is just, as I've mentioned before, just a, a wonderful woman, a profound thinker, and um, just is really incisive in kind of like watching something, reading something, and then dot, 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 kind of going through like, this is what I think, and I think this is what was portrayed here. So any good thoughts that come from here on out, I, I attribute to Teresa Linker. 
So as we're chatting through the movie afterwards, um, we kind of came to, okay, what, like, where did it go wrong? At first, it's kind of like fun and, you know, very colorful. And um, then, like, what happened? So there's this climactic moment where America Ferrara's character kind of issues this, this screed about the, the difficult place, uh, the difficult space in which women are placed. And I think that as she's kind of like, ranting I think I think it's pretty spot on I think just about everything she says is true she says you know women are placed in this impossible situation where you need to be thin but not too thin and if you're trying to be thin you better be striving for health and not thinness and you need to be good at what you do but not too good that you make other people feel bad about themselves and you have to be complimentary of others but not too complimentary because then you're seen as like you know this simpering sycophant um and she, she just kind of like rolls through the the difficult position that that women are placed in and I think that's very I think it was it was pretty spot on and speaks to the the difficulty that a lot of women maybe all women find themselves in 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 different situations but then after that it's like what is the, the the answer or the solution to that problem is just bad there's Teresa said very problematic so uh again spoiler alert if you haven't seen this um so after that what what do the Barbies do the the Barbies basically band together so Ken's the the Ken dolls have overtaken Barbie land the Barbies are banding together to get it back and what do they do but they first they play to the egos of the Kens they they basically like lure them onto the beach invite the Kens to sing them this song and then they immediately pit the Kens against each other so they start going from Ken to Ken so that the Kens are like wait well what about me and why are you over there and so that ultimately this war breaks out among the Kens so the Barbies uh, objective is to pit the Kens together and while the Kens are warring with each other to go back to whatever it is like Constitution Hall or the the city center and and reclaim Barbie land and so um the the men in the film go from being these like kind of like dumb bumbling fools dependent for their identity on women to when Barbie and Ken leave Barbie land and enter the real world, Ken encounters the patriarchy and then he wants to bring the patriarchy back to Barbie land. So, so the men go from being these kind of like dumb, bumbling fools to these domineering patriarchs who overtake the Barbies of Barbie land. Um, they then are shown to be these like domineering, beer drinking, bare chested, still like kind of dumb men. And then... Once the women, once the Barbies take back over Barbie land, Ken's back to like groveling before Barbie like, what am I without you? And like, where do I go from here? And uh, as Teresa and I chatted through, we're like, this is so sad. Like Greta Gerwig gets the problem wrong. Women are placed in a tough situation and men and women don't, haven't figured out how to not only peacefully coexist, but, but live uh, authentically and complementarily, <laughs> is that right? Um, but then her answer seems to be, well, you know, let's pit the men against each other and then we can take over and once again assert ourselves over the men who really just like need us to understand who they are. And you know what? I don't have time for that. So I'm just going to send you on your way and like hope you figure out who you are. And it's just so sad. Like, that's that's our solution. That's what we're going to do with this problem. 
Um, and so again, as we chatted through afterwards, Teresa said, she's like, thank God we have the Catholic faith. Like God already showed us, you know, we're, we're different, but we're complementary. Um, so we are not the same. Ken is not Barbie. Barbie is not Ken, but we each have different things to, to bring to the table. We each have different ways we can, you know, enhance society, marriage, family, the culture at large. So thank you, Jesus, for entrusting your truth to the Catholic faith. And uh, thank you for making us different from one another with different gifts and talents and and strengths. And then also with, um, I don't know if I want to say weaknesses, but capacities to uh, receive the the gift of the other, to come to know more of you, Lord, um, through those who are, are different from us. Oh, really, the Teresa and I determined that the probably the worst um, or like hypocritical moment of the film was when a, a transgender Barbie appeared. And again, I give all the credit to Teresa who beautifully articulated. She was like, wow, that's, you know, it's, it's a woman's role and a man has, it's been given to a man. <laughs> so it's like women are saying like, this isn't fair, you know, men have taken over. And yet a woman's position has been, has been given to a man which made me think of, you might be familiar with uh, Matt Walsh, a uh, public commentator. He writes for the Daily Wire. Oh, famous right now for his documentary, What is a Woman? He had this tweet on Twitter probably a couple years ago at this point when um, the assistant health secretary, Rachel Levine, who was a, who's a transgender individual, was in the news. Amy Schneider, a uh, transgender individual who I think won Jeopardy or was in the lead in Jeopardy. And then Leah Thomas, a transgender individual, a man who was on the women's UPenn swim team, were making headlines. And uh, Matt Walsh said, you know, basically like these men have co-opted the women's sports, jobs, um, game show, etc. It seems that the patriarchy wins again. And uh, it was so controversial or considered controversial that it was removed from Twitter. Um, and I think he was banned from Twitter for a little while. But I, I think that speaks, I think both situations, so this transgender individual on Barbie, a man playing a woman's role, and then this tweet from Matt Walsh speak to, right now there's this push in society to make men and women the same, to say there's no difference or it's like fluid, one can be the other. Um where, as we see, this is a very recent thing in human history, um, but the, this push is, it's like an anti-creation narrative. So whereas, I think it was Tetsuri um, who said, you know, throughout the, the six days of creation before God rests on the seventh, God makes distinctions. So th- things in creation and then ultimately man and woman are different but complementary, and we each, we each shed beauty and light on who we shed beauty into the world and then shed light on who God is. And the opposite of that is like mushing it all together and saying there's no difference. We're all the same and it doesn't really matter. You know, if you call yourself a man or a woman, if you occupy a woman's space or a man's space, if you um, you know, basically don't don't note the the difference and the complementarity. So come Lord Jesus, give us the grace to live our, our femininity, our masculinity well. Um, to recognize the differences between men and women and uh, the complementarity, the, the beauty that we can each bring to the other and to the world. All right, we'll take a brief break. And then on the second half of the episode, we'll return to read paragraphs 2292 through 2336. Thanks for sticking around.
You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 2292 through 2336 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Respect for the person and scientific research. Scientific, medical, or psychological experiments on human individuals or groups can contribute to healing the sick and the advancement of public health. Basic scientific research, as well as applied research, is a significant expression of man's dominion over creation. Science and technology are precious resources when placed at the service of man and promote his integral development for the benefit of all. By themselves, however, they cannot disclose the meaning of existence and of human progress. Science and technology are ordered to man from whom they take their origin and development. Hence, they find in the person and in his moral values both evidence of their purpose and awareness of their limits. It is an illusion to claim moral neutrality in scientific research and its applications. On the other hand, guiding principles cannot be inferred from simple technical efficiency or from the usefulness accruing to some at the expense of others or, even worse, from prevailing ideologies. Science and technology, by their very nature, require unconditional respect for fundamental moral criteria. They must be at the service of the human person, of his inalienable rights, of his true and integral good, in conformity with the plan and the will of God. Research or experimentation on the human being cannot legitimate acts that are in themselves contrary to the dignity of persons and to the moral law. The subject's potential consent does not justify such acts. Experimentation on human beings is not morally legitimate if it exposes the subject's life or physical and psychological integrity to disproportionate or avoidable risks. Experimentation on human beings does not conform to the dignity of the person if it takes place without the informed consent of the subject or those who legitimately speak for him. Organ transplants are in conformity with the moral law if the physical and psychological dangers and risks to the donor are proportionate to the good that is sought for the recipient. Organ donation after death is a noble and meritorious act and is to be encouraged as an expression of generous solidarity. It is not morally acceptable if the donor or his proxy has not given explicit consent. Moreover, it is not morally admissible directly to bring about the disabling, mutilation, or death of a human being, even in order to delay the death of other persons. Respect for bodily integrity. Kidnapping and hostage-taking bring on a reign of terror. By means of threats, they subject their victims to intolerable pressures. They are morally wrong. Terrorism threatens, wounds, and kills indiscriminately. It is gravely against justice and charity. Torture, which uses physical or moral violence to extract confessions, punish the guilty, frighten opponents, or satisfy hatred, is contrary to respect for the person and for human dignity. Except when performed for strict therapeutic medical reasons, directly intended amputations, mutilations, and sterilizations performed on innocent persons are against the moral law. In times past, cruel practices were commonly used by legitimate governments to maintain law and order, often without protest from the pastors of the church, who themselves adopted in their own tribunals the prescriptions of Roman law concerning torture. Regrettable as these facts are, the church always taught the duty of clemency and mercy. She forbade clerics to shed blood. 
In recent times, it has become evident that these cruel practices were neither necessary for public order nor in conformity with the, the legitimate rights of the human person. On the contrary, these practices led to ones even more degrading. It is necessary to work for their abolition. We must pray for the victims and their tormentors. Respect for the dead. The dying should be given attention and care to help them live their last moments in dignity and peace. They will be helped by the prayer of their relatives, who must see to it that the sick receive at the proper time the sacraments that prepare them to meet the living God. The bodies of the dead must be treated with respect and charity, and faith and hope of the resurrection. The burial of the dead is a corporal work of mercy. It honors the children of God who are temples of the Holy Spirit. Autopsies can be morally per permitted for legal inquests or scientific research. The free gift of organs after death is legitimate and can be meritorious. The church permits cremation, provided that it does not demonstrate a denial of faith in the resurrection of the body. Safeguarding peace. Peace. By recalling the commandment, you shall not kill, our Lord asked for peace of heart and denounced murderous anger and hatred as immoral. Anger is a desire for revenge. To desire vengeance in order to do evil to someone who should be punished is illicit. But it is praiseworthy to impose restitution, to correct vices, and maintain justice. If anger reaches the point of a deliberate desire to kill or seriously wound a neighbor, it is gravely against charity. It is a mortal sin. The Lord says everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Deliberate hatred is contrary to charity. Hatred of the neighbor is a sin when one deliberately wishes him evil. Hatred of the neighbor is a grave sin when one deliberately desires him grave harm. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Respect for and development of human life require peace. Peace is not merely the absence of war, and it is not limited to maintaining a balance of powers between adversaries. Peace cannot be attained on earth without safeguarding the goods of persons, free communication among men, respect for the dignity of persons and peoples, and the assiduous practice of fraternity. Peace is the tranquility of order. That comes from St. Augustine. Peace is the work of justice and the effect of charity. Earthly peace is the image and fruit of the peace of Christ, the messianic prince of peace. By the blood of his cross and his own person, he killed the hostility. He reconciled men with God and made his church the sacrament of the unity of the human race and of its union with God. He is our peace. He has declared, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who renounce violence and bloodshed and in order to safeguard human rights, make use of those means of defense available to the weakest, bear witness to evangelical charity, provided they do so without harming the rights and obligations of other men and societies. They bear legitimate witness to the gravity of the physical and moral risks of recourse to violence with all its destruction and death. Avoiding war. The fifth commandment forbids the intentional destruction of human life. Because of the evils and injustices that accompany all war, the church insistently urges everyone to prayer and to action so that the divine goodness may free us from the ancient bondage of war. All citizens and all governments are obliged to work for the avoidance of war. However, as long as the danger of war persists and there's no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peace efforts have failed. The strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force require rigorous consideration. The gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy. At one and the same time, 
The damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. All other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. There must be serious prospects of success. The use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. These are the traditional elements enumerated in what is called the just war doctrine. The evaluation of these conditions for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. Public authorities, in this case, have the right and duty to impose on citizens the obligations necessary for national defense. Those who are sworn to serve their country in the armed forces are servants of the security and freedom of nations. If they carry out their duty honorably, they truly contribute to the common good of the nation and the maintenance of peace. Public authorities should make equitable provision for those who, for reasons of conscience, refuse to bear arms. These are nonetheless obliged to serve the human community in some other way. The church and human reason both assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflict. The mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between the warring parties. Noncombatants, wounded soldiers, and prisoners must be respected and treated humanely. Actions deliberately contrary to the law of nations and to its universal principles are crimes, as are the orders that command such actions. Blind obedience does not suffice to excuse those who carry them out. Thus, the extermination of a people, nation, or ethnic minority must be condemned as a mortal sin. One is morally bound to resist orders that command genocide. Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. A danger of modern warfare is that it provides the opportunity to those who possess modern scientific weapons, especially atomic, biological, or chemical weapons, to commit such crimes. The accumulation of arms strikes many as a paradoxically suitable way of deterring potential adversaries from war. They see it as the most effective means of ensuring peace among nations. This method of, de of deterrence gives rise to strong moral reservations. The arms race does not ensure peace. Far from eliminating the causes of war, it risks aggravating them. Spending enormous sums to produce ever new types of weapons impedes efforts to aid needy populations. It thwarts the development of peoples. Overarmament multiplies reasons for conflict and increases the danger of escalation. The production and the sale of arms affect the common good of nations and of the international community. Hence, public authorities have the right and duty to regulate them. The short-term pursuit of private or collective interests cannot legitimate undertakings that promote violence and conflict among nations and compromise the international juridical order. Injustice, excessive economic or social inequalities, envy, distrust, and pride raging among men and nations constantly threaten peace and cause wars. Everything done to overcome these disorders contributes to building up peace and avoiding war. Insofar as men are sinners, the threat of war hangs over them, and they will so continue until Christ comes again. But insofar as they can vanquish sin by coming together in charity, violence itself will be vanquished, and these words will be fulfilled. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That comes from Gaudium et Spes. In brief, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. 
Every human life from the moment of conception until death is sacred because the human person has been willed for its own sake in the image and likeness of the living and holy God. The murder of a human person is gravely contrary to the dignity of the person and the holiness of the creator. The prohibition of murder does not abrogate the right to render an unjust aggressor unable to inflict harm. Legitimate defense is a grave duty for whoever is responsible for the lives of others or the common good. From its conception, the child has the right to life. Direct abortion, that is abortion willed as an end or as a means, is a criminal practice, gravely contrary to the moral law. The church imposes the canonical penalty of excommunication for this crime against human life. Because it should be treated as a person from conception, the embryo must be defended in its integrity, cared for, and healed like every other human being. Intentional euthanasia, whatever its forms or motives, is murder. It is gravely contrary to the, dig the dignity of the human person and to the respect due to the living God, his creator. Suicide is seriously con contrary to justice, hope, and charity. It is forbidden by the fifth commandment. Scandal is a grave offense when by deed or omission it deliberately leads others to sin gravely. Because of the evils and injustices that all war brings with it, we must do everything reasonably possible to avoid it. The church prays, from famine, pestilence, and war, O Lord, deliver us. The church and human reason assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflicts. Practices deliberately contrary to the law of nations and to its universal principles are crimes. The arms race is one of the greatest curses on the human race, and the harm it inflicts on the poor is more than can be endured. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Article 6, the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Commit Adultery. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Male and female, he created them. God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal, loving communion. Creating the human race in his own image, God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. God created man and woman in his own image, male and female he created them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of his body and soul. It especially concerns affectivity, the capacity to love and to procreate, and in a more general way, the aptitude for forming bonds of communion with others. Everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented toward the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends in part on the way in which the complementarity, needs, and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. In creating men, male and female, God gives man and woman an equal personal dignity. Man is a person, man and woman equally so, since both were created in the image and likeness of the personal God. Each of the two sexes is an image of the power and tenderness of God, with equal dignity, though in a different way. The union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh the Creator's generosity and fecundity. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. All human generations proceed from this union. Jesus came to restore creation to the purity of its origins. In the Sermon on the Mount, he interprets God's plan strictly. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The tradition of the church has understood the sixth commandment as encompassing the whole of human sexuality. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.